we've spent a lot of time building long-term trend-following models. I mean, they're I would say they're easy to do, but you, they're not that hard to do. The data is pretty clean to get. Daily data is pretty clean. It's easy. You can use it. We found that it's very hard to distinguish ourselves in that time frame, and and I, and I, I just knew it'd be very hard raising assets if if you're very correlated to everybody else. If you, it's very hard to distinguish yourself. So there was there was kind of a one part was there was a commercial you know decision at the beginning that hang on if we do it short term we can definitely get more uncorrelated. And then obviously the second reason is because I've sat in front of those screens for so many so many years. You know I know a lot of nuances and subtleties in in creating the systems these short term intraday systems. Being different is not so easy in the crowded space of systematic trading. But nevertheless, it can be important if you want people to pay attention to what you do. This was a clear motivating factor for today's guest when he was just starting out. Trading differently, using a less crowded time horizon, and perhaps most importantly, targeting a risk level in a very different and perhaps even unique way has certainly helped his firm to be noticed by institutional investors around the globe. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup-Larsen. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, where my goal is to give you the clarity, confidence and courage you need to invest like or invest with some of the top traders in the world. It is the stories that you never get to hear set out in the most honest and transparent way that I can make of what goes on inside the minds of some of the best investors in the world. Today you're listening to episode 75. If this is your first episode you've heard, you might want to go back and listen to all the earlier conversations. And if you want to start with something different and even explosive, start with episode 73. But before we go any further, let's find out who's on today's show. This is Barnaby Cardwell, CEO of Cardwell Investment Technologies, and you're listening to Top Traders Unplugged. Thanks for doing that, Barney. And by the way, if you want to read the full transcript of today's episode and all the previous conversations I've had, just visit the toptradersunplugged.com website and sign up by hitting the I am in button in the top right corner. It's that simple. Now let's get on with part one of my conversation. I hope you will enjoy it. Barney, thank you so much for being with us today. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I noticed a couple of things in my preparation that I found very interesting. And uh, I believe it sets your firm apart from some of the other guests that I've had on the podcast. Firstly, I noticed that some of the language you use in your information material 
It really led me to think about Toby Crable and some of the things that he does when it comes to trading at certain times of the day. So I'll be very interested to learn more about this. Um, also, the way you define your risk and what risk targets you have. I thought that was quite um, different and, and interesting. Uh, and finally, you seem to have chosen only to offer managed account at this point rather than commingle funds. I'd love to learn more about sort of your motivations uh, for, for doing this. But before we jump to, into all of those details, I have this sort of simple question that I try to ask all my guests, um, which is something that I've also, also myself found a little bit tricky at times to, to answer. And it goes something like this. When you meet people for the first time, it could be at a social event, for example, who don't know you, how do you explain what you do actually? Okay. Uh, yeah, people who don't know about futures markets, um, it gets a little bit tricky. I don't really want to go into the depths of how you define a futures market and how you can go short as well as long. Sure. But um, uh, if you assume the person knows that, you know, I, I sort of tend to tell them that we use historical past data. Uh, we try and fit models on that data to come up with ways of profiting from the marketplace going forward. It's essentially how I sort of explain to them what we do. Sure. That's um, fair. Yeah. That's fair enough. Let's stay with you for a little while longer. And I want to tell your story, but more importantly, I want you to tell it uh, really from the first time that you got involved in the business and to put a little bit of color on the on the story uh, you know feel free to go back as as far as you want you know what were you like a kid growing up or as a young man growing up um, really try and take us back and and tell us how this all evolved yeah okay so well going right back as a, as a kid always liked competing um, I used to play a lot of card games, domino games with my grandparents. <laughs> I used to spend <laughs> weekends with them playing these games. Used to love it. Uh, sure. Not necessarily a gambling, but just, uh, you know, uh, games, you know, where you basically, you know, you can win. Yeah. Um, and I love doing that. Um, also loved numbers, did quite a lot of mathematics at school, went on to study maths at university. Uh, and sort of around that time of university, um, I was I was sort of interested in financial markets. I'd never traded, mm -hmm. but I started to read a few books. And uh, I remember one of the books I read was Market Wizards, the first one. Oh, right. which is, uh, yeah, what, what age? What age did you read that? That's oh, interesting. Yeah, so it was probably about twenty, something like that. Okay. Um, loved it. Great book. Yeah. Um, still read it to this day sometimes. Sure. And the and the others. Um, so. I went to university. I came out. I did a few, um, actually, while I was at university, I did a few sort of internships with various industries, accountancies, um, actuarial practices. But I just, I'm glad I did did the internships, but I couldn't see myself um, taking a career in that in, in those uh, areas. Uh, you know, and, and it was really more and more about trading, and I really wanted to, uh, I felt that I'd, I'd eliminated the, the industries I didn't want to go into, and I felt that I wanted to have a go at trading in some form. So I um, so I graduated in 1999, um, and I tried to get a job in an investment bank. It was pretty tough then, because I think that was when the, was the dot com bubble had just burst, oh, yeah, sure. 99, 2000, something like that. Yeah. And uh, 
but I eventually managed to get a job, and it was actually at a uh, a very small broking house in London, who were backing traders to trade on Life and Urex as sure. they'd just gone electronic. They just basically um, they obviously didn't, um, well. Life was on a pit, futures pit exchange before, and obviously Eurex came about electronically and took some of the business away from life. But anyway, so there was this whole new electronic trading era, uh, arena, sorry, opening up in London, and I managed to get this broking house to back me to trade on the exchanges. Um, so I developed my own style back then. It was very, very short term. We were only trading a few products back then, you know, yeah, you know so short uh, we trained things like Uribor, FTSE 100 futures, um, Bund futures, DAX futures. There wasn't too much to trade, to be honest. Sure. Um, but uh, I developed a short-term method. It was quite mechanical, but it wasn't completely systematic. It was still discretionary. Um, but I started to do very well at that. I bought my contract out after a couple of years and started trading my own capital. Uh, and then over the years, more and more markets opened up electronically, so there's more and more things to trade. Uh, and uh, I did very well at that. Um, but um, over the years, I felt that I wasn't getting to the top of how I could be as a trader, and I, and I felt that taking a more logical and more quantitative approach would get me to where I wanted to be, especially I'd started following a few of these big funds out there like you know AHL at the time and Winton people like that they were starting to make some amazing money and manage some huge AUMs so that got me thinking um, and, and also at the time I was backing a few traders as well and this is where my operations manager comes into March and um, he, he, he was one of the traders I, I initially backed sure um, so we started working together trying to build up models getting together lo loads of historical data and trying to come up with systems um to trade in the markets over lots of markets instead of the, the the more concentrated markets we were trading discretionary um and we embarked on this process and realized yeah there's some money to be made here but we need more help our program ability is limited and our time is limited so we hired a few more people and it, things just grew from there really and we and we started the fund in late uh late 2008 november 2008 the program uh, and we've just taken it from there. Sure, sure. I want to go back uh, in time from 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 what you just said. I mean, I'm I'm very curious how you got that first job because, uh, in a sense, it sounds like you you come out of university, you've never traded anything, and then you get someone to back you um, to allow you to trade. How did that actually all sort of take place? Uh, did you already at that time have anything to? To show them or describe to them how you what you would you uh, you would do with the money that that they uh, would invest uh, with you. Um, well, I had a lot of tips. I was I picked up from reading books like Market Wizards, <laughs> and uh, I basically sort of plagiarized the ideas in that right. book and, and told them uh, this is how I was going to do it, and they seemed quite impressed i guess fake, um, fake it till you make it i guess yeah, yeah. maybe <laughs> no, but i mean the rule i mean the rules made absolute sense to me even yeah. though i hadn't traded i mean it seemed correct yeah um so yeah that, that's, that's how i did it yeah well done now just again staying on 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 sort of the the, the, the history and and this is something that uh i'm i'm quite interested in what was it when you read those books the market wizard books what was it about the books that 
fascinated you or caught your attention or you know because it they they obviously had a very big impact on your your career path so can you sort of remember what it was that really sort of made you think wow this this is something i want to do um well obviously there's i think it's a combination of the fact that you could compete right okay. you know that was pre- prevalent throughout the book and also you know money as well i sure. mean I like the fact that you can make a lot of money um, sure. without having to essentially maybe build a business or anything like that. If you could just get hold of capital, you could make some serious money. And that, that appealed to me. I never really wanted to be a, a manager or, or, or anything like that. I just, you know, the idea that you could compete on your own against everybody else and make money at the same time. And it's your job. Mm. You know, it just sounded brilliant. <laughs> Sure. Um, and also, also what I liked about about the book was Market Wizards in particular was the fact that so many different ways of making money as well. Mm. And essentially, it really all comes down to risk taking and psychology. Even if you're systematic, it's systematic, it's still about you know finding points in the market where you can uh, where there's some sort of edge. It's all about cutting your losses when you're not making it. It's all about running your winners when you are making it, mm. scaling down when you're having a bad time, putting your size up when you're having a good time, all these things, um, you, you know, they cross all areas of trading. Sure. Sure. No, that's very true. That's some, some good points there. You mentioned again, so the, the point about, uh, you know, the, the, the competition aspect that also sort of, uh, uh, caught your, uh, your attention um besides trading which obviously is competitive i mean you get your score every day i guess um have you done anything else in your life from a competitive standpoint i mean speed sports or something else because it seems to be something that um that uh, you thrive on yeah i mean anything yeah i mean i did quite a lot of athletics at school when i was young loved doing that sprints 100 meters 200 meters uh played rugby at school quite a lot of rugby um my late years, I start playing a lot of squash. Oh, right. That's that's quite intense competition. <laughs> um, anything really, right? Any any game it doesn't you know, any card game, whatever. I just sure. it's fun. Great, great. Now the first job, just staying with that a little bit. Um, did they teach you anything in terms of trading, or was it really something? Because I'm trying to see if there's any link back to the kind of the turtle experiment in a roundabout way where people would be backed and and you would get some money, but you would actually also be given some guidelines or instructions or something like that. Was there any of that in, in, in your uh, uh, in your first job? Because you also mentioned that you actually backed some traders yourself later on. And I, I don't know whether there is a link since you've clearly read some books and maybe you were even aware of the turtle experiment also back then. Yeah, I was, yes, I was aware of the experiment um but to be honest when i started there was no sort of there was a new there was no graduate program or anything it was just sort of you actually you initially started by sitting sitting in front of a simulator for a few months and then you got um capital to trade with but uh one thing which really helped was i sat next to a young guy who had he'd been there like a year or two years and he was doing phenomenally well mm-hmm. and uh it was just really good to sort of see how he traded um to see that you know he was 
you could be fearless, um, but also at the same time, you know, you got you got to you got to cut your losses when it's not working. He was so he's very clinical. He was disciplined. So I took a lot from sitting next to that guy. His name was actually Andrew Priston, mm-hmm. and uh, he actually went on to make a lot of money. I think he, he's still trading to this day. Uh, but so that was that was really, really good. Sitting next to someone to give you the confidence sure. to do it yourself. That was quite important. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's interesting. Many of the people I've spoken to, when it comes to, and it doesn't have to be a formal mentor in that sense, but just having someone to, to as you say, learn from in, in whatever way, uh, just seems to be so important uh, in the early stages of uh, a lot of these very successful people's uh, career. Now, if we you know fast forward to today, today you're running, obviously, uh, Cardwell, and that's a big part of your life. Um, what do you do when you're not working? What do you like spending time on? Not too much time outside of work. I mean, I've got two young children, so right. that takes a lot of time. But I like um, I like skiing. I don't go much, but uh, I like doing that. Sure. Um, holidays, if we can fit holidays in, that's that's great. Yeah. Visiting new places, I like doing that. Uh, and reading, reading, do a lot of. Sure. That's pretty much my uh, life. It's not a bad life. Don't get me wrong. Exactly. <laughs> Sounds pretty good. Sounds pretty good. Yeah. Now, before we jump into the next topic, I just wanted to ask you a more uh, sort of broad question. Um, it's clear that the CTA space originates from the uh, sort of the longer term trend following strategies, which you clearly were familiar with um, uh, early on. Um, but you chosen to be short term in your approach. So I'm interested in what the reasons were for you to choose to focus on this particular time frame, which frankly hasn't been that easy to master for many people. And we've also seen some firms uh, exit that uh, sort of time frame or, or the business uh, as a whole because they didn't make it being short, a short-term trader. Yeah, so I mean, kind of two, two reasons. Um, first is we spend a lot of time building long-term trend-following models. I mean, they're, I wouldn't say they're easy to do, but you, they're not that hard to do. The data is pretty clean to get. Daily data is pretty clean. It's easy. Uh, you can use it. Um, we found that it's very hard to distinguish ourselves mm. in that time frame. And, and, I, and I, I just knew it'd be very hard raising assets if, if you're very correlated to everybody else. If you, it's very hard to distinguish yourself. So there was there was kind of a one part was there was a commercial you know decision at the beginning that hang on if we do it short term we can definitely get more uncorrelated. Mm. And and then obviously the second reason is because I've sat in front of those screens for so many so many years. You know I know a lot of nuances and subtleties in in creating the systems these short term intraday systems because. The problem is, you know, there's, well, there's problems everywhere. Data is the biggest problem. It's it's not easy and continuous like daily data. It jumps around. Mm. You've got tick size changes. You've got open and close time changes. You've got problems with liquidity, volatility on certain historical events. But because I've sort of traded through everything, um, you know, we can incorporate, incorporate the, those problems into into our into our back testing into the data sets. Um, so that's so I think we just basically had the right ingredients. We also got a good maths background to systematize what we we're doing, but also because we've traded intraday, we can we can overcome the pitfalls. Mm. It's a yeah. tricky business. You know, sure. we've got one guy on just on data. 
Yeah. There's only there's only eight eight of us. Sure. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's so important. Um, I mean, I'm no expert in the short term uh, space uh, per se, but I think maybe it's fair to say that at some level, human behavior when it comes to greed and fear or lack of, you know, in lack of a better description, um, that's, you know, part of what happens in the short term, uh, in particular, maybe more so in than in the long, in the longer term. But and, and that goes back to human behavior, really. Um, but with less humans being involved in trading, we hear more and more about, you know, systems and robots and what have you. Do you think that, that, that there will be an effect on, on, uh, on the trading time frame that you've chosen, given the fact that maybe there is less human interaction in that time frame that there used to be back in, you know, 5, 10, 20 years ago? Well, yeah, I mean, I definitely say the markets are more efficient. When I, yeah. when I was trading discretionary, you know, as years went by, I noticed that it was it, it was harder to make money on a discretionary basis because the mm. efficiencies and execution were so getting so much better. Instead of people ripping the market with thousand orders, they would they now obviously seek them in. Mm. So there's less market impact on order on orders executed. But but as you say, as markets become more and more efficient, maybe more and more uh, being you know executed, you know, with with very little human uh, intervention, whether the short term pattern structures, whatever we call it, are changing in a way that it makes it harder to be short term uh, yeah. from a trading point of view. Yeah. So I, I agree. Yeah. So in the very very short term, yeah, definitely. I think there's a lot of competition there from yeah. high frequency trading and. And I think these guys are finding it harder and harder to compete. Yeah. Uh, we're lucky because we're our space is not really high frequency. Right. Uh, we're sort of average holders three, four days. So we're in that weird space where there's a, not actually that much competition. Uh, so it, it's been fine for us. We haven't noticed anything like that. Yeah. Um, and yeah. So and even if it does happen, so because we trade so many systems. Mm. Uh, it, it doesn't matter because the ones that degrade in performance, we reduce exposure to anyway. Uh, so they will be, eventually be taking it, taken out of the portfolio. And at the same time, we're always constantly researching. So we hope that you know we, we'd, we'd always have enough things to do to to create enough alpha to plug the gaps. Sure, no, absolutely. Now you've clearly been on a entrepreneurial journey for for a, for for quite a while, uh, and. Um, you know, it's almost like like sort of a, a quest to to uh, to uh, achieve something or strive towards something. But part of all quests is that from time to time you endure a certain amount of you know suffering or challenges. Uh, it you know that's I guess uh, normally. Um, how do you in 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 your mind, um, unless of course it has been smooth sailing all along, I don't know. But but how do you frame the challenges and maybe the, even the suffering that you've have to go you've had to go go through in order to get to where you are today? How how do you look at that? Um, yeah, that's a tough question. Um, I mean, I think as long as you sort of believe in yourself and you you stay true to yourself, you can. If the times are tough, it doesn't matter because you, if you know your trading is correct, your system is correct. When when the mark market moves happen, you'll always make money. So, 
you know, and I think you have to accept that there's always going to be in, in the trading world. There's always going to be tough times, tough mm. years. You know, it's, it's not a job where uh, you know it's going it happens daily or weekly or monthly or even yearly. I mean, you just have to accept that there's going to be rubbish times, yeah. tough markets, low volatility, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I mean, we've had since we started the program late 2008. It's been actually quite a tough time raising assets. We, yeah. we started at the peak of the CTA cycle. Sure. So once once we got our three year track record, um, you know there was nothing left to get. Sure. Sure. <laughs> so, but it, yeah, you know we we knew we had a good product, and you know I think we'd be proved right eventually that yeah. when the when the market comes back, we with volatility we we can make money. Sure, sure. Just obviously, we're going to go into much more detail, but why don't you give me a very brief overview of uh, the program you have today and and where your AUM is? Because I have a feeling you just crossed a, a big uh, landmark or a milestone, in at least in my book, uh, recently on that point. Yeah, so we just crossed $100 million. Yeah, congratulations. Yeah, which is great. It's been a long, long time coming, but we've, <laughs> we've made it. Although sure. now... I now I think uh, the, the the new benchmark's two fifty, not hundred. But I'm anyway, sure, I'm sure it is. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we'll see what happens. Sure. Um, and then in terms of what we are, what we do, yeah. So we're we're, we're a systematic managed futures program. That's what we do. We're short term. We're yeah. fully fully automated, fully auto executed. Mm. Um, so in a nutshell, that's what we are. We trade over fifty systems. Um, we trade. Uh, across global futures markets, so multi-sector, multi-products, as many markets as we can get hold of electronically, basically. Sure. Uh, and we we aim to create steady alpha with with and minimize our drawdowns. We like to keep our drawdowns to ten percent. Sure. Sure. And work work it from there. So. Let's jump to sort of the first uh, sort of set of questions that I just want to to uh, talk to you about, and that's really about the the organization. Now you've already mentioned you have a team of of, of eight, but you know you're clearly in a in a uh, in a space where uh, you know infrastructure is important. You're trading uh, relatively short term. Um, so how have you gone about the challenge of setting up an infrastructure that you know on one hand obviously satisfies your 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 own needs and and requirements but actually also maybe in a bigger picture satisfies the 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 requirements of of potential investors uh, looking at you how do you do that um when when you first start out and and as you as you've grown yeah so when we first started out there was there was only uh, four of us uh so we've grown it to eight um and and how we've grown the business is very, very organic. Mm-hmm. Um, you very quickly realize that you need to get up to some sort of institutional um, level, if you like, of business organization when you start raising money. So you need one guy solely in charge of operations. Right. Uh, and obviously, being a systematic fund, we need at least one. <laughs> obviously, you need at least one quant. Yeah. Uh, uh, when we first started off, we had. We developed our signals. They were totally automated, but in terms of execution, we weren't fully auto-executed. Okay. So we had uh, manual execution traders putting the orders into the market. Obviously, the, it's great in the sense that you've got a human overlay, but it's bad in the sense that you're limited to the amount of transactions you can do, especially if it gets busy. Yeah. Um, and so over the years, we've made more and more effort to become 
fully auto executed. Mm. So we've got a complete straight through process now from mm. signal generation to actually entering the orders into the market. And maybe just for 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 the for the listeners who uh, are not so familiar with 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 this part, what and and this is sort of digressing a little bit here, but what are the what are the challenges with auto ex going to auto execution uh, both in terms of actually uh, you know getting it done but i mean also actually from a risk management point of view i mean i think some sometimes when people hear you know uh, a manager say oh but you know there's no human intervention it just runs by itself etc cetera, etc cetera, they can maybe become a little bit nervous at the same time i know that that's what a lot of investors would like you to to be um so there's no human inter in, in intervention uh, in in the process but but how do you balance this and how do you ensure that nothing goes wrong if i can put it that way well i mean the first thing to say is is to admit that things always go wrong right. anyone who says things aren't going wrong with yeah. auto execution is sure. lying sure. uh so for instance we never we don't have any running any black box running on its own there's always someone at least two people actually in in the office at all times overseeing right checking making sure the execution is correct initially when we designed this software we test everything in a simulator environment uh then we go on to very small size in the real market mm. we try and write in as many layers as risk as possible things for instance in case we haven't thought of something so we limit the amount of trades we can do per second or per minute per market we try and write all these limitations into to fail safe in case we've forgotten to do something um so so yeah it's, it's done very incrementally very sure. slowly sure um uh, very modularly so that that's how we do it yeah I, you know uh maybe in your case as well i recently attended the conferences in florida um for for our industry and you meet a lot of the uh, the brokers there and they all talk about that they are unique because they have certain algos that they can offer in terms of algos to execute you know in the old days you would just have a stop order and once it's hit you know you 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 get things done as quickly as you can so to speak but today's world is a little bit more advanced how do you How much do you rely on on the algo itself in order to get efficient execution? Uh, do you think, if 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 one um, can, can put it like that? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. At the moment, not too much. We do a little bit of TWAP, VWAP, but okay. um, for us, it's more important to get our size size off or through the market through doing more and more iterations of the existing systems. So mm. by that, I'd mean basically shifting parameters slightly. Okay. So you get different <clears throat> different exit, uh, entry times, exit times. Uh, so you can get do smaller and smaller amounts in the market. So mm. it's maybe maybe our own kind of algorithm in a way. Um, so so we tend to do more of that. Sure. And using these pre-canned um, XOL goes. Sure, sure. Now you're clearly in the growing phase of your your business. I'm sure it will become much bigger over time, and 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 so on and so forth. When it comes to if you take your 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 trader hat uh, off and and you put your 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 business building a business hat on the entrepreneurial hat on, how do you build a strong culture? Do you think in an in an organization? Um, yeah, well, it's a lot easier if it's kept small ish. Yeah. Uh, that helps. We're all in one room. We're yeah. all together. I don't sit off anywhere in another office. We're all in it together. Um, 
try and make sure that people's compensation's in line with their abilities, make sure everyone gets a s- slice of the pie. Sure. But also at the same time making sure things are locked in so you know, you dangle enough of, of a carrot to uh, spread it out over time as well. Sure. Uh, um, yeah, things like that. Um, it's quite a tough question, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I should spend more no, time but, thinking about that. Well, no, no. <laughs> I, it, well, I mean, you can say it's a tough question in, in, in a sense, and I think it's tough for, for – because many of us, when we come into this world – you know, we don't necessarily come because we've studied, you know, business organization or anything like that. We we usually come in because we love the markets and we love trading and so on and so forth. But suddenly we're forced to also become managers of people, managers of organizations. So, so, so you're right. I mean, it it may not come natural to us to think about these things, uh, um, but but obviously they are important if you look at the long term picture. And you may end up with a firm of twenty five or thirty people. Who 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 knows? Uh, so, um, but yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, you're, yeah, you're definitely right there. I mean, yeah. it's definitely that is a work in progress for me as a person. Sure. Now, now you came from the uh, kind of discretionary uh, side. You you clearly have some ex- experienced people uh, alongside you. How do you combine the the qualitative overlay, so to speak, with your quantitative approach? Do you know what I mean? How do you how do you get the best of of what you knew as a discretionary trader or from an experienced executing trader from from some of your staff into the sort of the systematized, fully automated process? Yeah, so it comes in sort of various, various ways. Um, so like I said earlier, because um, we know about the nuances of, of the intraday market, sure. the intraday prices, we can apply that to, say, a back test. Um, we can we can look at assumptions made by the quant the quant team. You know, if if we're making a lot of money over one thirty, we can come in and say, "Hang on a minute, guys. You know, there's, there's usually an economic figure at one thirty UK time. Is it is it realistic? We're getting those prices. Um, you can there's qualitative inputs in terms of where we go in system design. Uh, we can look at maybe our existing systems. We we can see where they're failing try and hypothesize about how we can create a system to make money in the areas existing systems aren't making. So there's, you know, you can have a qualitative directional input into the research process. And I guess also, I guess that that goes also for, for the, for the fact when it comes to execution, I mean, the experience you've had and, and your team have had over the years uh, in, 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 in having to do the execution yourself, I guess that helps when you start building uh, the the automation in, into it. Yeah, massively. So you, you start with assumptions on your own experience about what kind of slippage you can expect per yeah. market. You build that into the model. You then reassess it as time goes by as you trade. We constantly reassess the slippage. Are we under, over scoring it? Uh, yeah, it, lo- loads of different things. Sure. Now I want to jump to the next point, which is a little bit about track record. Um, and because, you know, obviously your track record is uh, a little bit shorter than, than some of my other guests who've been around for, you know, 30 years. Um, so they might have evolved even more so. But when people look at your track record, is there anything, how should they read it? Meaning, how has the program in the last, you know, six, seven years, how has it evolved over time? So in terms of, 
evolving. I wouldn't say it's actually evolved too much. I mean, yeah, I'd say the duration that the short-termness has come down a little bit from when we first started. That's because we've got better on the quantitative side and the execution side, so we can go a little bit shorter. Mm-hmm. But, uh, in, in general, we've tried to keep as many as the original models as possible. We just add more and more as, as we go by. There's not really much style drift anymore. Right. Um, we'll, we'll continue to stay in the time frame we're in. We'll just try and add more and more competing models uh, which helps smooth out the equity curve. Okay, okay. And, I mean, you, you mentioned yourself that you kind of uh, managed to start trading uh, pretty much at the peak of the CTA cycle. Um, and, it, you know, it has been indeed very challenging, but, you know, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll give you uh, certainly the, the, the applause for having posted positive returns uh, every year since your inception. Uh, I think that's very impressive uh, given the environment. Uh, why do you think it was so difficult for the traditional CTA strategies to perform when you look at it from from your point of view? Um, yeah, I mean, one thing that helps is volatility, mm-hmm. um, especially for us short-term guys, but it, you need some sort of continued movement. You know, even if you're you're a long-term trend follower, you need continued movement. We haven't seen too much of that. Obviously, this year, uh, this year and last year we did, but uh, yeah. before then we hadn't seen much of that. And there's a lot of sort of risk on, risk off uh, trading. So everything became all very correlated. Uh, so markets weren't hedging themselves off like they used to do historically. Although that seems to be coming back now. So th- that was another reason. Yeah, and I'm I'm just curious about this, uh, the, the you know your your view and your answer on this uh, question, and that is, if you were given the choice of being able to look at a 20-year track record of someone, or uh, clearly knowing that the program had changed and evolved over time, or a simulated track record on the current system that the manager was running. Which one do you think is most meaningful to look at? Mm, that's a good question. If it was on the current program and it was backtested using exactly the same parameters they were using now, mm-hmm. um, I don't know if that would really be possible if it was dynamic. But uh, if that was the case, then uh, I think that has as much credibility. Sure as the real real track record if if it's not fudged yeah yeah no i agree i mean i think it's an interesting question because um we we do face i or i i say we but investors face the uh you know the conundrum about track records i think and i, I don't know whether they think about this uh in in that way because people are very quick to disregard a backtest but on the other yeah. hand if you're dealing with someone who's clearly experienced who knows how to do a backtest, um, then I think, personally at least, I think there's a lot of meaningful information in in uh, in, in, in it. Um, although I'm not sure that many of the larger uh, managers today would actually give uh, some of that research data uh, outside. Uh, may- maybe they would, maybe they wouldn't. Um, but uh, but it's interesting. Anyway, you don't need that. You've got a real track record, so <laughs> people can look at that instead. Now let's move on to the heart of the strategy itself, namely the the program. 
you're just looking at it from kind of the, you know, the 30,000 feet point of view, what is it that you're trying to deliver with your program? So, yeah, what we're trying to deliver is we're trying to deliver market movement, stretching alpha for market movement on on shorter time frames, non-trend non time frames, basically, non-long-term trend time frames. We're looking basically for, we're looking to find points in the market where there's a higher probability than normal of the market moving away from that price point. We don't necessarily know which direction it's going to go. We just know for that given price or that given point in time, uh, the market's going to move away more than it would normally do. Mm-hmm. And uh, just uh, you explain that a little bit further to me. I'm not entirely sure that I understand what that means, whether that means you're trying to revert back to some mean or whether you're trying to actually um, you know follow a, a, a short-term trend. Yeah, so I guess essentially you could you could classify as finding some sort of short-term trend or short-term momentum in the market. Mm. And so what we do, if you want to profit, if you think you've got a point in the market where the market might do that, if you structure a trade with a fixed stop loss and you give it time to run, so you give it some sort of time-based exit, if you structure mm. the trade around that, uh, you, you, can, you can make money. So that's interesting. So you talk about uh, obviously having a fixed stop. I think that makes perfect sense. And maybe we'll talk about that a bit more when we, when we get to sort of the risk management side. But then you mentioned the word time-based uh, exit, which uh, many people probably, uh, I'm not sure that they're you know, fully aware of what it means, but I guess in, in, in short, it means that you're exiting the market based on a certain uh, amount of time. It could be days, could be hours that you've been into the trade. So my question is, why do you think that time-based exits other way to go because that's I don't think many people uses that I've come across it before but it's it's not often yeah so I mean so traditionally if you if you're a trend follower you probably do some sort of hugging volatility stop something like that which follows the trend mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> the problem is if you try and do that intraday in a very short or short-term basis this the markets um, way more volatile than, than the daily market uh, is. So you can't, if you start using these hugging volatility stops, it, it doesn't work. There's too much whipsaw. Right. There's too much erratic behavior. Um, the, the, the edges are still there in the market for it to continue in the direction you, you hope it's going to go. But the only way to capture it, we think, is via time-based exits, mm. letting it run, but not actually having some sort of trailing stop. Mm. It's it's funny because when you describe it like that, you use the word trend following and you use the word time-based stop. It, you know, many would probably say, well, there's a inherent contradiction between the two because trend following is all about letting the trend run for, you know, indefinite if the trend was still, you know, up or down. Uh, you know, you can't predict anything about time. How do you... Um, I'm interested in how you would respond to that, but I'm also interested how do you find out how long should a trend, you know, how long should, uh, should a trade be in order to capture the trend that you think there is? Yeah, so essentially, so on, on, you, you can do a time-based exit on a, on a long-term trend following. What you do is just have a, you would backtest and look at the parameter, the time, have time as a parameter. Mm -hmm. 
and <clears throat> start to see where uh, the PL basically goes positive as, as time increases. Um, obviously, on a back test, you could always find some sort of mathematical optimum on whatever on the parameter of time. Mm. Uh, but what we do is we don't we don't don't really tend to pick uh, optimal parameters. We, we we try to pick a, a set of parameters. Sure. So we don't assume there's an optimal. We just say if it if a trend trend following system is profitable, so I don't know with a time based parameter uh, exiting it two months and beyond, we can go right exit it two months, three months, four months, five months, six months. And that, that will still make money. Mm. You don't have a volatility stop, it'll probably still make money. Okay. And and how how far out do you actually go? Because clearly you mentioned three to four days average holding, but I mean how far do you actually go out in your in your trading? I mean how long can a trend be for you in order to uh, to capture it? Yeah, so we've got a very small actual trend trend following component. Okay. Okay. Uh, that goes out to a maximum of thirty days, though, to keep us within our remit. So there's very, very few trades at thirty days. There's a lot of lots skewed to sort of one, two days, uh, then three, four, five, six, and it's you know it's like a, a, a decreasing uh, curve of when on, on the frequency of exits. Sure. So tell me a bit more about. You know the kind of models you you run. You say you know trend following is not necessarily, you know what you do in uh, for the most part. But, but tell us a little bit about the different type of of models you have inside the program and 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 the reason why they're there. What what do you like about them and what you're trying to achieve uh, by using them? Yeah. So, I mean, one of my sort of favorite ones are uh, momentum anomalies intraday. So intraday momentum. So what we do, we look for. So you pick up in speed of the movement of market intraday. Mm-hmm. Uh, that itself's okay. You can sort of make a little bit of money with that, but it doesn't. It's not good enough to create a program on. Um, what you need to do is we combine it with some sort of consolidation. So you have a pickup of momentum. The market starts to pause. So we've got proprietary ways of measuring that, mm-hmm. picking it up. Uh, and then what we find is that's a m- much better way. Of making money with intraday with intraday momentum, the fact that the market pauses, it gives you a, a better reference point to get in or to get out to get into the okay. position. Okay, and then obviously you can have your time-based exits. You can vary the time-based parameters and and run the trade with a, with some sort of fixed fixed stop, which sure. we would have back tested. So that's and I like that. I like that particular set of models uh, because they're very fractal. They work on lots of different Time frames you can use on whatever thirty-second chart okay. uh, bar chart. You can use it in a five-minute, thirty-minute, daily. It's it's very versatile. Okay. Um, and very low on parameter sets. Um, so yeah, so we do a lot of that. We do we do a lot of work looking at the open, the open. Yes, and that's that's what I picked up when I early in my introduction referred to to Toby Crable and 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 I have no idea whether that's true or not but but obviously that was one of the things that he got you know very good at and and famous for yeah. um so so tell me about that that's interesting yeah well I'll just tell you a story there funny enough um I heard about Toby Crable and I managed to buy one of his books on eBay yeah. cost me a thousand dollars yes it's, it's right yeah <laughs> But uh, that was quite a good read, and it gave us a few starting points, starting places to research. Um, there's not many of those books around, but um, yeah, it, to be fair, I got a few ideas from Toby Crable there. Uh, and when we started back testing, you know, you, we you do find that the market moves differently 
on the open than it does any other part of the day. Um, and if you can set up trades in certain ways, you, you can definitely make money from it. Also from gaps in the market as well. We find opening gaps, you know, from a psychological point of view, it means that the market's done something different. Now the question is, will it psychologically, will it accept this price or not? So you, you can profit from how the market reacts after a gap as well. Tell me more about when you say that markets are, you know, behave differently at the open. Tell, tell me more about what the difference is and, and why you think they are, uh, you know, behaving differently. If there's a, a, a good logical reason why they should be behaving different. Well, I guess, you know, one simple way of maybe explaining it is if, especially with a gap, for instance, if, if the market gaps, I guess if, if say the market gaps up, yeah. um, short-term participants are going to panic quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, so from a psychological point, they, they're going to be more erratic in how they get out. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that tends to, I think it tends to overplay, overpush the market. Right. Um, so that's just an example, I think, of how you could perceive it from a psychological point of view. Um, also, I think just from a practical point of view as well, I think a lot of People just trade on the open if they have to get in or out. I think they design a lot of the longer term models to trade on the open or on the close, for instance. Mm. I mean, the open is interesting, isn't it? Um, because, uh, and I guess from um, this, I'm, I'm sure you've been thinking about this for, for a while. And that is with electronic markets being open almost 24 hours a day, the difference in time, at least, between the close and the open is becoming much smaller. So you would think that the uh, need or the reactions uh, from people um, might also change because maybe there's not such a big difference between the close and the open because they happen within an hour or so. Is is that is that true, that, that things actually are changing just because the exchanges are going more or less to 24-hour trading? Uh, yes and no. We've sort of seen little bit of degradation maybe in, in, in some of the markets, especially uh, the grains. They're, they've been chopping and changing closing times mm. uh, back and forth for the last five, six years. Right. Um, but in general, even if the futures markets go longer, there tends to usually be an underlying cash market which right. still seems to be fixed, has a fixed opening and close time. So that, you know, it will still get, Uh, put into the market on the base basis of the cash as well so the effects still seem to be there mm-hmm. interesting i get i mean just my own personal observation i guess it's it, it could be somewhat harder to 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 backtest these things because of the structural changing uh, changes that the exchanges are making to to the, to this thing about the the open but uh, but yeah well yeah this is this is where our sort of you know our background expertise come in because we've yeah. lived and breathed <laughs> in front of these screens, you know, we know all about the nuances there. Yeah. That's all incorporated into our our data set, our historical data set. Yeah, no, absolutely. How many markets, uh, Barney, do you trade? Trade, trade about 60 at the moment. Does all yeah. 50 models, are they allowed to trade all 60 markets or are they more, you know, some models are only trade grain, some market, uh, models only trade foreign exchange or how, how do you do it? No, in general... Our models have to trade, have to work on all, all markets. Mm-hmm. See, there's a few exceptions, like short end, for instance, doesn't move enough intraday to warrant 
it, it being in the bucket, you know. So there's a few exceptions to the rule, but yeah, in general, we we we, we want to trade, yeah, across as many markets as possible. That's that's how we know a system's robust. Right. It works on all markets. You know, you haven't curve fitted it. Maybe not a question specifically to to you then, um, because. Um, You know, because you're smaller than the biggest uh, firms in in the business, but and 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 but there is this uh, debate, if I can call it that, between um, being fully diversified or being overweight financials. And clearly, the bigger you get, most likely the more you will overweight financials, where you have better liquidity. Do you have a view on this? I mean, is it your intention to say the day I can't be fully diversified? I'm gonna cap my AUM, or uh, do you think that it actually doesn't really matter? You can continue to find ways of making money, even if you have to do it more in the financial sectors. Yeah, again, that's a tough question as well. I mean, I'd probably say for us, we would start capping it possibly mm-hmm. if I had to get if I was so big big that I had to start going more into financials. Um, Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, and it's different for long-term trend followers because, especially in the the bond markets, you get more carry effect as well. Mm. Um, sure. So, that, but it's not necessarily, you know, that's not really in in the majority of futures markets. Mm. It's it's more in the in the, in the bond futures, uh, you know. So maybe they get an extra double whammy. <laughs> as sure. well as the trend there. Yeah. Are there any particular sectors or markets that your approach works? better at not really no oh, no interesting interesting anyway i was interrupting you when you were talking about the different types of models you you clearly like the momentum uh you talked about uh, models trading around the open uh what else are you doing in your program yeah so we've got like i said we do have a small trend component there's probably no need to go into that every everyone who's <laughs> listening to interviews probably knows about that uh we have some Quite a few different patterns we've we've sort of discovered over the years through our observations, which we've back tested and seem to work going forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we, we've got a selection there. We we incorporate. We also look at basically time effects. So we think things could be calendar month effects, uh, different things like that. You know, beginning of the month there seems to be an effect in the market, so we try and capture that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, a variety of different things. Sure, sure. And and again, to to uh, you know the, the the broader audience, but I uh, you know probably also to people who who are specifically interested in in in, in your strategy and and what you do. Are you able to kind of visualize for us um, how you create a strategy? I mean, what what actually happens from kind of idea generation to implementation in your program i mean what stages do you go in uh in order for it to to uh, meet all the you know tick the boxes and 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 so on and so forth yeah so i mean so how we work what we don't do is go and just mindlessly mindlessly is the wrong word but <laughs> go in data mine for right. something right we we usually start with an observation some sort of hypothesis and then work it from there so obviously like i said because i've traded discretionary intraday for so long i've got a basically a, a backlog of ideas to test mm. um so 
we, we go through those. Uh, also, another starting place is, like I said before, if we've got an existing system, we see it's failing in certain parts of the market. Uh, we try and try and hypothesize a way of how we might be able to make money from the area where existing systems are failing. So they're, they're, they're good starting points. Uh, and then what we do, we, we will roughly backtest it in a commercial piece of software just to sort of see if it's doing what we think it should be doing. Uh, then what we do, I give it to one of our quants and he'll go and actually properly program it in uh, and we'll backtest extensively over all our markets. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, go back through it for debugging, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, then what we do, we, we then follow it um, hypothetically. Mm-hmm. Uh, we usually wait for it to go back through watermark before we even consider putting it back in the port, in the real portfolio, just to give it an extra bit of confirmation. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's maybe like a forward test, you could call it in a way. Uh, so that's kind of how we operate. Sure. And um, you talked about certain models that you like. I think uh, certainly part of the audience uh, that are listening are, are people who obviously aspire to. Ready to learn more about the world's top traders? Go to toptradersunplugged.com and sign up to receive the full transcripts of the first 10 episodes of the show and visit the show notes where you can find useful links to other amazing resources. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode of Top Traders Unplugged.